Well, welcome lovers of product. I'm here today at Duolingo with Jorge Mazal. Why don't we kick this off, Jorge, by uh, starting with a little overview of your background. Sure, thanks for having me. Hi, everyone out there. So I'm, I'm Jorge Mazal, I'm the director of product here at Duolingo. I've done a variety of product management roles before coming here. I was in, in gaming, I was in health and fitness, productivity apps. And before all of that, I was in nonprofit in the education sector. So when this opportunity came along, I felt like it brought everything together. And so I decided to pack my bags and move across the country here to Pittsburgh and having been loving it ever since. So tell us a little for those who don't know about Duolingo. Yeah, Duolingo is the largest education app in the world in terms of installs. We have over 200 million registered users. We are focused on language education. So you can take one of more than 80 courses for free. So if you want to learn Spanish, English, whatever. Most of our users are outside the U.S. learning English, but we do have a very large user base in the U.S. as well. I know my wife used to touch up her French before we went to France on a trip, so cool. Yes, yeah, it's a very common use case. So you've had a lot of experiences building product teams both here at Duolingo and elsewhere. Can you talk to us about what you've learned from your experiences? Sure. And my experiences are probably quite specific to the, the company size that I've been at, right? And it's this you know, 100 to 200 size company where product teams are actually kind of fairly new or still evolving. People know they, they need strong product management and CEOs can be involved in everything anymore, but there's still this kind of growing pains in the organization. And there are a few things that I have found to be really helpful to have in mind. One is that you can't take a cookie cutter approach to hiring product managers. That very large companies, I think they have a profile. Very small companies, they try to find like the perfect match for that first PM. And this is something in between. And you still have to craft each hire. You have like a, a basic baseline of, of competency, you could say, but each the, the needs are still so diverse that you kind of have to have this um, one at a time picking of each PM. At least that's what, what it's been like in my experience. And the way I go about that has been trying to identify in an organization the tasks that are being executed, the problems that are being dealt with, and the opportunities that need to be captured. And then from there, create a list of skills that I need PMs to have to perform against those tasks, problems, and opportunities. And I feel like I've come up with like a fairly good list that I use when I try to hire PMs. There's, I think, about eight of them. One is leadership, another one is strategic thinking, analytics, analytical ability, design sensibility, technical know-how, creativity, user-centeredness, and kind of subject matter expertise, right? And for us, that's, that's education, that's learning, that's language, subscriptions, those are all kind of subject matter topics that are important for us. And then what I do is that I try to evaluate each PM against each of those areas. And what I find is that not every applicant, or not, not any applicant actually meets all of them. So yeah, it's absolutely. about- it's about crafting the right team, right? So it's like a patchwork and you find people that are really good at some things and really good at other things. But as a team, as a product management team, we cover all those areas fairly well and then we help each other out. So that's kind of like the getting the right people on the bus is the first thing to build a great product team. And then it's about how to make them work together. And what I find there is that one of the key things is that 
just as important as results for a product organization are is learning. And that really effective product organizations are really good at learning and teaching one another. So everyone learns from everyone's mistakes and, and, and wins. And to do that, I have found that you know experiment write-ups are, are obvious things that you need to do, but often those things are kept within teams and or just management and they don't get distributed very broadly. So what we do is that we, we have a listserv and we send those out to everyone. And something that I have found to be helpful is that every so often, every couple of months or three months, a team should go through all the experimental write-ups that they've done and actually do some sort of like, almost like a literature review, right? Where like scientists do this, where they, they write papers about other people's papers. <laughs> they don't actually do all the research. And, and that's really helpful to see what the, the preponderance of evidence is. And I think product teams should do the same thing. You go through the last 30, 40 experiments you've run, you review all of them and actually do some sort of, what have we learned from the last three months of like 50 or 60 experiments we run? And that's been super helpful to do that. And then the other component of this is focusing an organization into being really, really, really user-centered. So anyways, I've been talking for a long time. I, I don't no, know. I think that's good. I, I would continue on that line. Uh, there's two areas you know, I'd love to dig into a little bit more. Let's start with the list of skills, right? And you're building this patchwork. So talk to me about how you assess someone in each of those different areas. Do you have a methodology for doing it? Yeah, yeah. So that kind of goes into the hiring process. And the hiring process, you know, for most people, it has kind of three phases, right? There's some kind of screening, there's some sort of task, and then there's an on-site interview. And I kind of have an approach to each of those things. The screening, I think, is actually fairly standard, but the, the task, often the task seem, for a lot of companies I've seen, is fairly targeted to just one of those areas as opposed to many of them. So I crafted a kind of a task that I send applicants that tries to cover as many of those areas as possible in some sort of kind of shallow area to see if there's anything that they're terribly bad at from the get-go, right? Like they're really bad at data or they're really bad at design or something. And then when they actually come on site, they have set up an interview four or five of those attributes uh, and the people interviewing are laser focused on that, right? So it's a, an, an analytics interview or a design interview or a leadership interview or a strategy interview, right? And then when we all get together, everyone understands that their experience just represents one facet of this person and not the whole person. So not any person can like veto or like hire someone unless they did something terrible like on a personal level, right? But just from a skill set, they can say, well, this person is not good at strategy, but they can't say this person is, is not good because let's just look at that. So for analytics, you know, we do like some sort of funnel interview for design. There's this design challenge that is fairly self-contained and I think quite accessible for people who don't have design background, but kind of shows the user-centeredness uh, of someone. And then for strategy, we do like a strategy case similar as if you were interviewing for like a, like a McKinsey or a Bain. It's just very similar to that. And then for leadership, it's really about team fed. It's about leadership stories, behavioral stories, and, and things like that. Well, that, that sounds really well thought out. I like it. I know uh, when I'm interviewing, I often like 
pick five areas or skills and I'm like, well, stack rank yourself because no one ever wants to be weak at something. Right. So it's like, here's five things, stack rank yourself in there. And then it's a hard exercise, I think, for a lot of people to really think about how do I want to position this? And, you know, and then you can dig in later and see how honest they were about their stack ranking. I could see this being a, a next step in that stack ranking approach I do. Something yeah. I think I'd, I'd love to take advantage of. I, I like the, the framework you use there. Another thing you talked about was experimentation, right? Can you talk to us a little bit more about how you integrate experimentation into your work and your organization? Sure. So my, my first PM job was at Zynga, and Zynga is a company that is extremely data-driven and maybe a little bit to a fault. The only things that matter for them are the things they can measure, which is problematic, but measuring all you can is great, right? So every single change, every single concept, we try to think of how can we A-B test this and use that as a way to prove hypotheses, right? And, and there's a difference between proving a hypothesis versus using A-B testing to prove each other wrong, right? Sometimes in, in an organization, it's like, well, you think this way, I think that way, we'll just do an A-B test and see who wins. And, and that's probably not, that's not the best way to do A-B testing, but more whether we believe about the user, whether we believe about the experiences we want to create, and does this test actually prove or disprove that broader concept? Hmm. Awesome. So you mentioned Zynga, and for those who don't know, Zynga is a, a mobile gaming company that has quite a few really awesome games, huge company back in the day. I think yeah. they're still doing really well, right? Yeah, they're doing good. How has your work at Zynga approached, affected, impacted your approach at Duolingo? I mean, you mentioned one area, right? Yeah. So from Zynga, I think I, I learned things to do and things to not do. And I kind of hinted at that earlier, where you want to measure everything, but you also want to consider things that you can't measure. Uh, and that's the, the area where Zynga kind of faltered a little bit. And that's, that's a takeaway that I have taken it very seriously in my career since, to care about the things like, fun and relationship and, and brand and things that are hard to capture. So that's one area, right? So one form that that exists here at Duolingo is referring to our mission. So we're, we're a very mission-driven company. We care about the social impact that we have. So we often bring up, when there's tough decisions to be made, we bring up, okay, what's more aligned to our mission? And that helps us stay focused and sometimes see beyond what the data says. So talk to me about that a little bit. Like, what's the reiterate the mission for Duolingo and how that impacts your decision making? Yeah, so it's interesting. I don't think we have like formally articulated our mission, but somehow we all understand it. And and that mission is that we want to provide, or that aspiration, I would say, is that we want to provide excellent language education for free to the whole world. And the reason why we want to do that is because we believe it does two things. One, it empowers individuals to access economic opportunities especially people learning English. And two, it generates greater understanding of, of different people and different cultures, which we believe helps just the world get along better. So those two things, you know, understanding and economic prosperity feel like can help us be a better world. And we believe in that. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I think, you know, my experience with Penda were very core values focused, right? So one of our core values is maniacal focus on a customer. So we often have decisions like, is this good for our customers? Like we're built to make product teams' lives better, right? So we think about this, if we did this, is it great for product teams? Is it making their lives better? Is you know, improving their life in some specific way? Is it helping our customers? So I can definitely see that there's a lot of 
it acts as a north star, having you know a mission or and a series of core values that can be used to you know frame your decision making. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, super helpful. So one other thing you talked about when we were chatting earlier is you've done a lot of work about building user frameworks and shared vocabulary about users. Can you take us through that? Sure. So I believe that that's the, the job of a PM and of a product organization. And that's probably unique. A lot of companies, they distribute that differently. It could be marketing, it could be design. But I really want PMs to own that because they often own business outcomes. And if they own the user experience and the business outcomes at the same time, I feel like they balance those things well. So what we do is try to make interactions with users and user research a regular part of PM's work habits, not just something you do every once in a while, but can you set up recurring interviews every Friday or, or look at send us the data all the time and so forth. And once you have this constant flow of qualitative user data, how do you get those insights, distill those insights for yourself? But more importantly, how do you distill those insights for the entire organization, right? So not everyone can spend hours talking to customers so they need those insights to be summarized and synthesized into frameworks. And a framework could be something as simple as like a one-page table or some sort of user journey or personas or, or story mapping and so forth. And there's, there's a variety of them, right? Hierarchy of needs, etc. And what that does is it helps crystallize your own understanding, but it also gets the entire company and the entire team aligned on what the user's needs are which then when it comes time to brainstorming and coming up with solutions, then the whole debate, the whole discussion is in a much higher plane because everyone has this, this knowledge and understanding and allows for much better, faster innovation. So I, that's something that, that we do quite a bit. Awesome. So, you know, recently I had Nir from Hooked on my podcast and we talked a lot about the power of habits creating habits, getting that engagement, and keeping your users engaged. Can you talk about how behavioral psychology and habits have impacted your work as a product leader at Duolingo? Absolutely, yeah. So psychology in general is super important for us in two fronts, right? One of them is the, the learning side and making sure that people are actually acquiring new knowledge. And the other side is the engagement side and making sure people come back every day and increase their commitment over time. And what we find that's really interesting is that often those things mix in unexpected ways. And sometimes an experience that's meant to educate and improves your cognitive ability actually is really helpful for engagement because it's hard, like learning is hard. And the harder you work, the more you learn. But the harder you work, the less likely you are to come back at some other time. So we, we use a lot of learning science and behavioral science to try to find the, the sweet spot for, for that. So for example, something that we, that we noticed in the past is that if we, like I mentioned, added harder content, people would drop off. So we had to keep it easier. So now what we do is that we, we allow users to drill into different skills at their pleasure, right? So we, we released this feature called Crown Levels, where you can choose, once you do a skill, you can choose to go to the next skill or you can choose to do harder content on the same skill and you can level it up. And um, that has been incredibly successful for us in terms of improving metrics and engagement and learning as well. So that's one of those examples where using some psychology, you can get your cake and eat it too. 
more on the on the behavioral side, you know, some some classics that we've been doing for some years. Streaks are are super powerful. They're a way to visualize your your mastery of learning, visualize your commitment. They're also a way to signal to the community that that you are someone who's who belongs in this community, right? Who's who's a leader in this community. So those those are fantastic. Push notifications are also key. Uh, you know, perfecting the timing and, and the wording of, of those messages also has a lot of psychology around that, right? So those are some, some areas that that are important. So yeah. So going back to team and product managers, what you know, we talked about these eight areas, but what other attributes are most important in product managers, or is it really you try to encapsulate it in those areas? I think th- those are the eight that I that I most care about. At least when I screen for product managers, I think once they are actually on the job, knowledge of the product itself becomes incredibly important. Knowledge of our users as well. So I guess maybe one that I, I didn't include that I should have included is curiosity, right? Are you going to just eat up as much information about the product and the users in the market as quickly as you can? Yeah, and things like yeah. empathy would probably fall under user-centeredness, right? And Absolutely. And passion, yeah. I guess, to that mm-hmm. extent too. Yeah, yeah. So looking forward, you know, the craft of product management, product management's a real, relatively young discipline, especially when you compare it to engineering or sales or marketing. What trends do you see in the next few years that will affect the craft? I think there's a lot. One of these is obviously AI, machine learning. I imagine A-B testing and experiment write-ups and things like that will evolve quite a bit. I think we'll have experiences that are less set in stone and more dynamic that just evolve with users where you craft an experience. I think the job of a PM is to craft the experience that drives the business results. And right now that on mobile, it usually means you're thinking of a, of a UI and a UX flow. In the future, it might be you're thinking of an algorithm a lot more. A lot, some people already think that way, but it would be far more common for PMs to be thinking about the experience that algorithms create than, than the UI. So I think that's a big one. I think voice is another big area that will change the way PMs think, where, again, you're moving away from a UI that's graphical to one that's purely voice and audio. And, and I think one another area that will, I think will change is the complexity of teams themselves. So traditionally, you think of a team and it's the engineer, the design, the PM, maybe QA, and it becomes it's hard, but it's manageable for a PM to think through across all those areas. But as technology starts taking on more and more areas of your life, you can imagine those teams becoming more and more complex. So for example, we now have uh, linguists that are in teams, right? So that changes things a lot. And we might have people who are writers or create stories and, and things like that. So that means that PMs need to be sufficiently competent in more and more areas so they can understand this new counterparts and, and add value to them, to what they do and bring it all together. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. I, I know recently we published podcasts with John Narona from Optimizely. So we we're talking about experimentation, which you mentioned as one of the areas that's going to be increasingly important for PMs. And I had a podcast with Catherine Hume from Integrate AI, who's you know, obviously, I guess, or maybe not so obviously with the .ai, but, you know, big into artificial intelligence and machine learning, and that's a lot of her background. And so you kind of hit on two things that, you know, I saw too. It's very interesting how that all coalesces together. So on, on Jorge specifically, let's turn the topic to you. 
What's your favorite software product and why is it your favorite or your favorite product in general? Sure. A, that's a tough question. I ask that question often to uh, people I interview. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I've done that too. <laughs> uh, but I haven't been asked to me in a long time. But one of my favorite two, two products that I have really enjoyed over the years, one is Google Maps. I think it's a favorite of a lot of people. That was the reason why I bought my first smartphone. I was moving to Boston and everything was new. If you come from the west to the east, you realize that the streets in the east make absolutely no sense. <laughs> There's in no Boston grids. in particular, yeah, especially yes. in Boston. Mine's now turned to ways for other reasons, as you can imagine. You know, just travel time. But yeah, yeah continue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I bought my first smartphone. We went to Boston with my wife, and it really felt like I belonged so much faster than it would have otherwise, because I could go anywhere I wanted. I could discover things around me. And it felt really empowering. And I think that that's become a theme in the industry, right? Where I think the something like Airbnb is almost like an evolution of that feeling that came from, from Google Maps, uh, where you feel at home in new places. And I think there's more happening that, in that direction. Awesome. So what about words of wisdom to impart to others in product leadership? Anything... You know, if you had to summarize your career into like, hey, here's three or four things you should always think about or always do or not do. Sure. Words of wisdom. I, this might sound cliche, but I think never losing sight of the customer needs. It's so easy once you are in product leadership to worry about what the company needs and our metrics and worry about what are your employees need and what they want and their goals and you know internal politics or, or concerns and sometimes it's so easy to get detached from that customer and that really is the most important thing because that's where the value is being generated and it's far more important to generate value than to capture value so that would be my my word of wisdom Awesome. I think that's a great point. And you think about it as, it was interesting, I guess, I'll frame it this way. We did a a survey of product leaders, and a lot of it was like, is your roadmap and your strategic direction more driven by customers or competitors? And oddly, I was kind of shocked. We found that of the 300 people we surveyed, it was mostly B2B SaaS or B2B companies, predominantly probably SaaS. Their direction was more driven by competitors, which I found a shocking and b a horrible, (laughs) horrible idea. (laughs) But I I like to hear that you know the customer centric view is very important because you need something that is completely differentiated about your product that makes customers compelled to use it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's so easy to think that you know the pain that customers have, and the truth is, you probably know 80% of the pain and that's what all your competitors know but it's the extra 20% you don't know where you can make something truly differentiating and that wows and delights the customer right so knowing knowing those little things you miss is what's going to make your roadmap 10x better absolutely so a final question for you today you know three words to describe yourself passionate mission driven and user-centered You know, it's interesting as I've done more and more of these conversations, I always ask people that question and product leadership, I hear a ton of user centered or empathy, something that's very user focused, like walking in the shoes of their users and then a lot of passion. Well, thanks. This was great. Thank you. Thank you.